Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the new sea. to the Art and Science of Running podcast. We're here with Max Paquette. Max is a scientist um, and it actually has a background in biomechanics and, and in injury prevention health studies. And he joins us from Memphis, Tennessee. So welcome, Max. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Um, so I, I first kind of saw some of the work that, <laughs> that Max does uh, on Twitter and uh, with with a somewhat comical tweet, um, and and I, I believe I was following you before then, Max. But um, I saw this tweet and it it jumped out at me and it and it made me laugh. Um, and at the same time, I I was curious as to as to why you felt this way. Um, and so I, I read your bio and things and and thought it would be fun to have you on the show because your experience lends itself to to you know, having some expertise <laughs> in this field. So I'm going to go ahead and read the, read the tweet Sounds and then we can, we can discuss it. Um, so Max said, new coaches, if runners ask you to coach them, ask one question before agreeing. Quote, do you own Nike whatever percent? If the answer is yes, turn them down. If the answer is no, take them on and demand that they wear them for racing. <laughs> You'll look like a genius coach on paper. So um, do you want to... Do you want to give us some context there, or, or what did you mean by by this tweet? Yeah, that's funny. I, um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of examples to this. Like, I, and I'm not discrediting. I'm not. I didn't say this. Discredit coaches or their ability to coach. And I, obviously, there's fantastic coaches all over. But it is it is interesting that you know I I think these days. Um, you know, with the with 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 these Nike shoes that are that are clearly uh, providing some benefit uh, for, for performance that, you know, you, you could almost just not really focus on the actual training aspect. Of course you still have to train, but you can still get some massive improvement just from wearing the shoes. And so, especially if you have newbie runners who are signing on, if you're a coach, um, it, it would just, you know, your track record would look so good. Um, there's <laughs> just to have people wear the shoes so often you know in, in in running if you if you train if you coach several athletes uh that are competing in the same race the odds of each athlete performing optimally are are, are, are kind of low uh you know it's it's really hard to get every single athlete to perform optimally at the same time and so i think you know these shoes are potentially a, a very uh you know, again, again, it's more a comedic, comedic tweet, but I think they're a solution for, for increasing your, uh, your, um, sort of your, your win percentage, if you will, 
uh, at a given race. And so that was kind of the context. And I was on a run uh, a couple of days before I tweeted with some friends. And I kind of thought of this uh, and I, and I mentioned it and, and the guys, and I got a laugh out of the group. And so I thought, I know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there and, and see if it gets out, it, it gets a laugh out of more people. And it turns out like, it seemed like it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really did. Um, and, and you, you do some coaching and some consulting yourself, correct? Yeah. And, so I, um, for the last, so I, you know, I've, I started coaching in, in the mid two thousands and, uh, in, 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 in Canada and, coach some junior athletes and I actually have a background in sprints and hurdling, um, sprints and hurdles. And so I, uh, you know, I, I went through some, uh, coaching education with that. And, you know, of course the biomechanics and just, uh, that, you know, sprints and hurdles are such a, such technical events that, uh, I certainly had, um, an interest in, in applying concepts in biomechanics with that. Uh, but then I'm, you know, being a middle distance, distance runner myself, I, I moved, quickly towards uh, middle distance and distance running. And so I, co- I coached juniors, you know, since the mid 2000s uh, when I was in Canada. And then I moved to the U.S. for a doctoral degree. I didn't really coach a whole lot. And then uh, uh, started uh, coaching uh, my wife, Lauren, who's a professional uh, middle distance runner here in the U.S. and coached her from 2015, well, late 14 to, to, uh, to now. Uh, and then along the way, while here in Memphis, I've started coaching a number of uh, high school runners privately. Um, and then, you know, I've, uh, the consulting aspect has come from, you know, local high school, some high schools, some uh, uh, universities around and just helping, you know, uh, people, whether they're higher level or, or, or lower level, uh, whether it's strength training or, uh, you know, programming of, of running training. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my coaching uh, background. Nice. Now, did you, were you interested in the sprints and the hurdles after your competitive career? Uh, or you were a steeple, uh, uh, an elite uh, level steeplechaser, correct? Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I would call myself uh, elite uh, ever uh, in any event, but um, I was sort of like a top 10 guy in Canada in the steeplechase at the national championships. Uh, and so, of course, it's funny because uh, that you that you bring this up because my my running um, was okay and uh, I would I would compete with you know runners in Canada you know decently well like I said top ten in the steeplechase but when it came to uh, flat races like the fifteen hundred or five thousand I was like yeah I was way 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 low on the lists um, <laughs> and so part of it was I think is I was so focused on my form maybe, maybe too focused on the form not if on the running part but. Um, so I think I became quite uh, an efficient hurdler, and I and I would I would gain some ground on on those guys that would beat me in uh, in flat races. I would be much closer uh, in the steeplechase. Um, so I really got interested in the technique of of hurdling, and so then I think that's that sparked some of my interest in sprints and hurdles. Nice. Yeah, it, it was it, it was certainly clear that the biomechanics of hurdling, even in a in a middle distance event like the steeple the three thousand meter steeplechase made a difference for me. So I thought, you know, clearly biomechanics are important. So I, I'll try to study that more and, and apply it to sprints and hurdles. But yeah, that was the background. Okay. Yeah, for, for those of you listening that don't know what the steeplechase is, um, it's it's the same as the horse race, <laughs> but it's on a track and it's with people. Yeah. Uh, they're barriers that don't fall over, yeah. that, that if and when you hit your trail leg on yeah. them, it takes your knee out or you fall pretty hard um in my case um in high school i ran it once and and uh i remember 
my mom was down near the the track and it was one of the few times that we got to run in a large stadium and I hit my knee on the my trail leg on the on the hurdle or the barrier and uh, I'm pretty sure my mom and everyone else there heard me swear quite loudly um, and it was it was an embarrassing moment because it echoed throughout the whole stadium but um, I finished with blood all over so you know that was cool but um, yes yeah <laughs> um, in high school that's really all that matters is you know whoever has the best battle wound but um, right. yeah I, I tried to run the steeple I. I I, I enjoyed the, the technique piece, but um, I, I imagine I was even slower between the, the barriers than you were. And so I, my coach has always, you know, appreciated my, my technique. It just, <laughs> the speed in between the, the barriers wasn't fast enough to be a competitive steeplechaser. But um, I had fun coaching other athletes to, to figure out how to do that that were faster than me. So um, it's a fun event for sure. It is. It is. It's fun to watch as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and um, sadly, you know, everyone likes to watch the water jump mostly to see who's gonna uh, fall on their face and and or get stepped on when they're coming up out of the water jump. But um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty intense event for a, for a track, um, definitely. Um, so as far as um, some of the some of the work that you do, you you actually have a a vast, <laughs> a vast number of publications with a wide array of, of topics that you've covered in your in your research and throughout your uh-huh. your academic career. Um, the, of the over fifty publications that I um, looked at, um, I was most interested in um, in those that relate to injury prevention mm-hmm. um, or or increasing the injury rate. Um, and so that was actually one of the questions that I had for you about the Nike, whatever percents, (laughs) um, and, and I know that they're, the shoes are new, the phenomenon is new, um, and there is a fair bit of data to indicate that they have, um, significant performance gains, um, or, or lead to increased running economy and things like that. But, um, are you aware of any studies that that might indicate that they may help reduce injury or may cause injury or, or based on just your understanding of how the shoes work and just how the body works? Do you have any concern that that's a, that's a concern that's been um, shared with us <laughs> and, and yeah. that we're trying to dig deep and find an answer to. And, and I want to preface that with, um, I don't care one way or the other. I just want to try and provide, <laughs> provide the information yeah. for people sure. because that, that's just a, it's a, a question that we receive quite a bit as to yeah. are, are they beneficial? Will they actually help increase, um, de- decrease fatigue and therefore kind of increase the ability to train more or should they only be used exclusively as a racing shoe? And um, if using them more, will that increase the rate of injury and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a, so much to unpack there with, with these shoes um, and the possibility of how they can be used or why not or why they shouldn't be used. Um, so let's start, I guess, from the start, uh, sort of given some, some 
some background on the studies on this. You asked about studies regarding injuries and all that. And, and so, so far, uh, the bulk of the studies have been done uh, mostly to assess how the shoes um, uh, affect uh, economy uh, of running. And, and, and so economy of running, uh, you know, I think it's becoming a more well-known measure or, or term, but it's essentially at, at some set speed, typically this is a, a sub-maximal uh, pace or speed. Um, it's the amount of oxygen that is being consumed per minute um, uh, or, and per uh, kilogram of body mass uh, during, during running at a certain sub-maximal speed. So often, you know, to make it relevant for a specific runner, when you're measuring running economy, you might say something like, Hey, what's your goal marathon pace, for example, which, you know, even though it's a race pace, it should be fairly some maximal because you have to hold it for 26.2 miles. Um, so you might test a person at that marathon pace and then measure the how much oxygen they consume and that whatever amount uh, or volume in milliliters per minute per kilogram of body mass they consume would be their running economy if that makes sense. So, um, and that seems to be a good measure of, of distance, distance running performance. Uh, and it's, you know, it is related to the distance running performance and there's been studies on this, but most of the studies so far on the Nike Vaporfly 4% or next percent have, or actually there's none so far on the next percent, but on the 4%, it's been uh, mostly on economy. So more of a performance twist, less of a injury uh, risk twist, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's been quite a few studies. Most of them have come out of uh, Dr. Roger Crom's uh, lab up in uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, many have been, uh, uh, you know, published with first author being uh, Voucher Hukamer, who who is uh, who was a postdoc in Roger's lab and now is a, a assistant professor at the University uh, uh, of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, and so Voucher has done a, a bunch of work um, on this and. Um, uh, and has published a good amount of papers on this as well. So uh, it's very clear that the shoes from a performance standpoint, that, that there's benefits that's there, right? It's, this is not, I know some people are critical of some of the studies because Nike funded uh, a number of these studies, but um, I might be biased because I like them, uh, Roger and Voucher and, and, and the, the people there, but uh, you know, their track record, Dr. Crom's track record in terms of uh, publishing, you know, bulletproof protocols for, for uh, physiological based studies uh, is outstanding. And so I, um, I have zero doubt that these data are absolutely um, legitimate. Uh, and so um, the, the findings are clear. These shoes work. And if you want to run faster, um, you should wear them is, is what I is what I tell people. Um, yeah. And so so that's the, the context of the, of the performance-based studies. In terms of running injury studies, there's really been nothing. In fact, I would go a step, you know, or a mile further and say, there's really been no studies on shoes and running injuries, really. Um, it's really hard uh, to, to tease out running injuries uh, from single factors like shoes. Um, and so I think that's why currently, even in 2019, after decades and decades of biomechanical and epidemiological research on running injuries, we're still a bit confused as to what's going on. Um, 
just the design of these studies that would that would be needed to truly identify uh, specific effects of whether it's shoes or, or, or biomechanics or what have you uh, in, in, in causing injuries is really challenging. So I'll just preface what I'm about to say about the shoes with that. <laughs> so uh, it's just a massive logistical design challenge as well for studies. Uh, although there are no studies on injuries in these shoes, um, there's Again, Voucher, uh, WhoCommerce, published uh, uh, in, his, in the group there at Boulder, published a really nice biomechanical studies of the shoes. And so to, to go back to your question about, you know, yeah, the shoes, the shoes might or seem to work, and, and they do, but are, are there any risks, right? So I think risks versus uh, are there things that cause injuries are very different terms. So I think we could, we could, we could sometimes say, oh, this might be a risk, but we, we rarely can say this will cause an injury. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sort of breaking it down in between two, two the terminology is important, basically. So well, they did it. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I think um, when people ask this question, it's likely because they want to avoid injury because they've been injured. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean... It, up to 60% of runners uh, get injured um, throughout the year. If not, if not more, I've, I've seen up to like 80%, like runners get injured. That's it's part of Yeah, exactly. I, I tend to avoid these statistics anymore. A yeah. lot of studies will start their, their papers by saying, oh, runners get injured X amount of percent. I, as you said, the runners get injured a lot and just leave it at that, right? Yeah, and, and even how do you define an injury? Like most right. of us have some sort of niggle. Yeah, if, right. if we've been running for any period of time that yeah. we're working on at all times and um, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So people, you know, there's lots of injuries. People ask, okay, I'm injured. Uh, what, what are they, what do these shoes, what can these shoes do for me? Right. It's kind of what you're, you're asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, as all things, unfortunately is, you know, it just depends on the context of the injury, where the injury is, so on and so forth. So I will say this, these shoes uh, seem to do two things. They don't change running biomechanics that much, to be honest. Um, but one thing that, that I noticed that, that they do seem to, to change are, are uh, the amount, I'll be careful with the words I use here, but during propulsion and running uh, often, so the, the, the most amount of, of propulsion that we get uh, in running in, in the later phases of the of running is is uh, comes from the from the from the calves the plant the plantar flexion of the ankle and so uh, these shoes seem to decrease uh, the amount of, of of power so power is sort of a measure of uh, both kind of force and and how quickly that force is is developed um, the, the shoes tend to decrease the amount of ankle, and this is rotational or angular power um, during the propulsive phase uh, of running. So typically in running, the ankles produce the most, the, the ankle plantar flexor, the calves produce the most amount of power out of all the lower limb joints. So hip, knee and ankle. So they're very important, these muscles to, for propulsion during running. And these shoes um, seem to decrease the amount of, of power required uh, by the calves, which is really interesting. They also decrease the amount of power that is that is produced by the uh, metatarsophalangeal joint, which is kind of the joint where your where your toes uh, attach to the long bones of your feet. So in, in the forefoot area, 
where if you're running and you push off the ground, the shoe bends sort of, you know, at the, at the base of your toes and, and that bending area, that's the, that's the meta, metatarsophalangeal joint or um, uh, the acronym here would be N, the NTP joint. And so the shoes seem to do, to do two things, which is reduce the amount of power required by the calves and, requ and reduce the amount of power required by this NTP joint. Um, so uh, it's, it's uh, quite, quite interesting that they do quite a bit uh, around the foot and ankle, but they don't seem to change anything at the knee and hip. All right. So hopefully you, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So far, they tend to reduce the demands uh, of, of uh, propulsive demands at, at the ankle and at the at the NTP joint, but not at the knee and hip. So why that's important is that, um, and I again, there's no data on this, but logically, if you have if you have things like uh, Achilles, you know, pain or 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 soreness or, or, or you know all the various different terms that we can use for, for calf pain, um, Achilles or calf pain, um, it would be logical that given the reduction of, of the involvement of the plantar flexors during running that these shoes provide, it, it would be logical that if, if people who have calf pain or, or soreness or Achilles pain or soreness, that wearing these shoes might help. Um, and in fact, one of the things that I keep hearing from these shoes is that runners tend to be report that they are less sore than usual um, mm -hmm. at their calves following uh, runs in these or run or marathons. So yeah. it certainly seems to compute uh, when you start looking at the biomechanical evidence that, that is out there uh, and the anecdotal, anecdotal evidence of runners saying that their calves are less sore following marathons in these shoes. Um, so then from that context, I would say, yeah, if you have some type of soreness or, or, or discomfort in your calves or Achilles, these stiffer, they're, you know, they've, they've got a really stiff, um, you know, carbon plate in there. And so, uh, and the foam obviously also does some, some work. So uh, it, it seems to, to, to help sort of reduce the amount of, of involvement of, of those calves and, and then Achilles tendon, of course, as a result. Um, so it might be useful uh, in, in that context. Um, I'm not sure I would say, that they could reduce Achilles injuries or calf injuries, but they could certainly, they could potentially alleviate, you know, uh, uh, some discomfort or pain, uh, especially in, in the rehabilitation phases of an injury uh, of, of the Achilles or calves. Uh, I, I, I would be, I would be willing to, to bet that, that this would be a, 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 a promising footwear intervention um, that people could, could utilize uh, while they're rehabbing from these injuries at the calves and ankle. Well, that's, that's really good to hear. Um, thank you for that. Um, with the, with the reduction, um, of the, or the demands on the, on the calves, yeah. is, it, is it only going into, is that all absorbed by the, by the shoes or is it displaced to somewhere else in the body? Would you think? Um, <sighs> Yeah, so it doesn't seem to be going to the knee or the hip. So often when we when we see changes at the ankle uh, or reductions at, at, at one joint, it tends to lead to an increase at a different joint. Uh, mm -hmm. But in this case, it it, it doesn't. Uh, nothing really shifts more proximal to the knee and hip. Um, okay. But uh, I, I I would I would guess that I would guess that. Uh, and again, this would be a really good question for Vouter or Roger. But I I, I suspect that the uh the shoe is 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 taking some of that so, or some of that work right so 
some of the energy that that are is moving away. So work is often used uh, uh, sort of uh, the term work is often defined as sort of um, well, I'll just to, to put it simply, people often use work energy sort of uh, interchangeably, not not necessarily directly correct, but uh, there's some there's some there's some value there. But uh, if you think about energy being less at the ankle or MTP joint, uh, it, it's possible that given that the energy return in those shoes is quite high, that, uh, that the shoes are, are, are doing some of that work uh, instead of the, the plantar flexors and, and the Achilles tendon and then the muscles of, of the plantar region of the foot that are moving the MTP joint. So yeah, it seems like the shoes are doing something. Uh, it's really hard to tease that out though. Uh, where exactly how is it the foam more so than the plate and so on and so forth uh, but there's that that 2018 uh, uh, scientific paper by uh, by Wouter uh, and, and Roger and I, I believe Shalaya Kip is a, is a co-author on that uh, is, in, is in the journal sports medicine uh, and it's it's really good I, I can share that with you and and so the information out there um, can provide some context yeah that, that would be great we'd love to include that in the show notes yeah um, Thank you very much. Um, so, um, hmm. this will be interesting. <laughs> as, as far as as far as running injury, um, I mean that's, I guess that's the the silver bullet that everyone is looking for. Um, that's the, <laughs> but it's it's probably part of what motivates some of your your studies. Um, are there, are there things in general that, that runners can do? Um, it, I, 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 some, some of your research seems to be around footwear, um, yeah. or some of your interests. And so, um, and there, there has been quite a, quite an, a revolution or evolution <laughs> of the footwear industry, um, running specifically in the last decade or yeah. so, um, with some of those trends, can you can you speak at least authoritatively, <laughs> um, or if not, um, just speak anecdotally um, as yeah. as far as if there are if there are certain trends that that may have increased injury or decreased injury because uh, many of the trends have claimed that that was <laughs> that was their purpose was to was to sure. decrease injury. Um, whether it yeah. was minimalism or maximalism or, um, or carbon fiber plates or peebacks or whatever it may be, um, or splaying the toes or all, all sorts of different technologies that are out there, um, that are at least, uh, marketed as this is a way of reducing injury. Um, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense from a marketing standpoint, like, you know, I think popular media in the world is, is always looking for big, big titles, like big claims and, and uh, headlines. And so the idea that a shoe could reduce injury, that's sort of the, that's the holy grail of, you know, shoe science injury type of uh, headlines. You know, mm -hmm. if I can, if I can confidently say, yeah, this shoe right here reduces all injuries. I mean, one, if I could, if it's actually true, I'm a millionaire and I'm a billionaire potentially, and I'm not uh, doing any more science likely, <laughs> to be honest, but that's not going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think people want, they want, it's such a weird thing. Runners want shoes 
to work so badly in reducing risk of injuries. Like it's just such an easy fix, right? You know, I, I've, I've got injuries, but I really want these new shoes that I bought to help me reduce my risk of injuries. And, and sometimes it's really hard to sort of, um, it, 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 it's hard to stop this belief that, that shoes should reduce injuries. So we are, we're, we're sort of, it's ingrained in our, in our minds as runners that like, you need to change your shoes, you need to wear this kind of shoe, you need to do this and that with shoes so that you don't get injured, right? And, and it's, it's fascinating because there's absolutely no evidence ever uh, in, in, in the running science literature that shows that doing X, Y, Z with shoes helps with reducing injury risks. It, there's, no, there's no evidence. Yet, th this has been going on for decades. This idea that, you know, change your shoes, get this shoe, your foot looks like this, guess what, you, you need this shoe and so on. So it's, it's fascinating. I think the only, the only aspect of running shoe with regards to injury risk reduction that has, and, and I say, it's not like a clear cut thing, like, yes, absolutely, it helps, but that has some evidence is the idea that, um, you know, rotating through a number of pairs of shoes uh, might might help reduce risks of developing injuries. Um, so that's the only thing that I would say, and I still say it cautiously, because I'm not saying that if you go and buy five pairs of shoes that are all different models and that mm -hmm. you rotate through them, that you will not get injuries. That's not what I'm saying, but it might, it might help, right? Given some of the research done on, in, in this topic, on this topic, but there's no, there's no end all be all to that. There's not a clear cut answer. So, um, so that's kind of the big things. I think we, we've just been, we've been sort of, um, we've been told for so long that we need shoes uh, to help prevent injuries. And so we, we try to find the best shoe and, you know, we get fitted and all these things. And again, there's not really much evidence regarding fittings and, and preventing injury risk. So again, I think that's just one thing that makes human beings feel good is that, oh, someone looked at me specifically, my shoe, my individual movements. And as a result, this might be the best way, but again, no evidence. Um, there's some evidence, some, uh, I wouldn't say evidence, there's some um, theories that have been put out there regarding how, you know, getting shoes based on comfort um, might be the best way to reduce injury risks. But again, I think, you know, anecdotally, many people buy shoes based on comfort and they still get hurt. Uh, and so the evidence there is fairly weak, I would say. Um, but I always say, if you're going to get hurt regardless, you might as well wear comfortable shoes, right? Uh, <laughs> So there's some value to that. You might as well be comfortable kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the, the, the science on this, uh, on injury prevention is, is difficult. Uh, the, the next thing I believe is, is going to be the next sort of big area of discussion with regards to running injuries. And it's starting already, but there's not that much evidence on it or at all is, is the idea of strength training, specific sort of deliberate strength training um, to, uh, as w with a primary goal of, of reducing risks of injuries. I think that's yeah. got some potential. The evidence isn't quite there yet. It makes sense, but it's not mechanistically, it's not quite clear how the idea is that if you strength train specific tissues of your body, your calves, your, your quads, your hamstrings, so on and so forth. The idea is that you are making them able to handle more force, let's say, right? So as a result, they are uh, 
stronger and then when you when you increase your running training those tissues whether it's muscle or tendon uh, or bone even should be able to handle the running uh, uh, more easily so in theory this makes sense right um, and we know that strength training has benefits in terms of improving performance or at least improving running economy as I discussed before um, but the evidence on strength training for reducing risk of injuries is, is not strong. Um, it just logically makes sense. And a lot of, a lot of clinicians, physical therapists or physiotherapists use strength training every single day. They prescribe strength training to, um, again, increase tissue capacity, tissue strength, so that when they do get back to running following injury, those tissues might be able to withstand the demands of running a little bit better. Um, and I think the, a good analogy there is I tell runners is that if you if you take a house analogy and the foundation or structure of the house is the tissue capacity and then the um, the contents of the house is running, so you know furniture, human beings, pets, whatever, right? That adds load to the actual structure of the house. That's running. So when you build a house, you know you're not gonna put furniture in it first, which would be the running. Um, you would build the actual structure of the house so that it can handle its contents. And once you have the structure in place, so that would be strength training, increasing the amount of load that the tissues can handle, then you can buy fancy furniture and invite friends and buy a dog or two and, you know, a big, a big expensive and heavy piano in the, in, in, in the, <laughs> in the great room kind of thing. And as a result, uh, those pieces of furniture you're training can stay in the house and not fall apart kind of thing. So that's kind of the way I've explained it, at least to some of the people that I coach and other colleagues and whatnot. Um, and so historically, though, runners have been afraid of strength training um, in that, you know, often it's because they think it's going to make them too heavy or too, too massive, too much mm -hmm. muscular mass. Uh, and then also that they might, they're, they, they might not want to do it because they're afraid they don't know what they're doing, uh, which is, which is a fair thing to be worried about. But of course, there's enough resources out there now that you can easily learn what to do, what not to do and, and go from there. And, and so historically, uh, in strength training, people have used, you know, core training uh, as strength training or things like, you know, low weight uh, and high rep counts mm -hmm. or repetitions to, to, to fatigue or failure. Um, and that you know, ironically, that is the way to gain mass. That is more lifting volume. So as a result, by doing that, you would, you know, you would gain more muscle mass. But the evidence, at least from a performance standpoint, shows that strength training should be done uh, with fairly heavy loads. Um, and so heavy loads seem to help with uh, improving economy in runners. And most clinicians, be given the evidence out there to increase, uh, you know, tissue strength is, is to lift heavy. Uh, and so you know, what ends up being what we're scared of is what we should do, which is lifting heavy, but do less volume. So by, by doing four or five sets of two to four reps with really heavy loads, um, mm -hmm. you're not doing that much volume, but you're actually likely uh, improving uh, how much those tissues that you're training can handle. Um, but again, I'm not sure we're quite there yet uh, in, in terms of convincing runners to do that. I think again, it's just ingrained culture that if you lift heavy, you're gonna be you're gonna be heavy and and, and massive, and so we, people are afraid of it. But that's the way that we should be. Uh, that's the direction where we should be heading right now. 
that's that's really helpful. Um, I know Malk, who uh, unfortunately wasn't able to be here today, but um, he he works in the field of strength training as well, and and um, tries to use strength training um, in in tandem with um, with gait analysis, and and so trying to identify some of those inefficiencies or deficiencies that people might have with their gait and and fix those through whether it be through strength or, or drills or things like that. Um, but I know that that is a, <laughs> a common concern um, among runners is that we either don't have the time uh, in, in some people's minds, like the strength training, what, whether it is a core or a body weight routine or, right. or if it's just like, oh, well, I only have X amount of time to run and, oh, that's getting crunched already. So I'm not going to add any more time to. Um, yeah, totally. I, I hear that I'm all the time. And I, time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, you know, because running training, it, again, we have to remember that, you know, we're training for running. So we like running is the most important component of it. But if, yeah. if you want to increase how much you run, because everybody at some point plateaus, everybody, you know, loves to say, oh, I run this many miles. And if I go beyond this many miles, I get injured. Um, and so if, if, if you want to increase your volume, because maybe your performances are, are, are plateauing, um, it, it makes sense to, to try ways to make your body more resilient so that you can handle more, vol or more running okay. and as a result, potentially improve. And so, um, yeah, I totally see how time becomes an issue, but I think it's important to know that you don't need to spend hours and hours in the gym to, to, yeah. to, to, to do this. So. You know, you, you need, there's a, there's a few pieces of equipment that you could use and, you know, a, a squat rack might be a lot of equipment for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, even if you have really heavy kettlebells and, um, you know, objects like that, that, that can help you um, increase how much load you you end up lifting. Uh, I know I would choose three to five exercises, um, you know, any you know, things like Front squats, I think, are, are, are fairly easy to learn, especially if you're using kettlebells. Um, front squats, um, deadlifts or Romanian deadlifts, uh, if you have kettlebells, or, or even uh, if you're not quite used to lifting, might be easy to learn with a, with a Romanian deadlift and a full-on deadlift. And then things like overhead push presses, uh, lunges, um, and then calf raises. You know, I've talked about the, the importance of the calves earlier. If you can really focus your strength training around calf strength. Uh, and if that's the only time you have is 10 minutes a day, I would just do calf raises, both with a straight knee or a bent knee. Uh, you know, those would be, I think that's the biggest bang for your buck is, is if you can't, if you don't have any, any time to do anything else, just do heavy calf raises. Uh, and then you, uh, you might've heard of a, of a fellow named uh, Rich Willie, who's a PhD PT out of uh, Missoula, Montana. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Rich has done a bunch of work on, on well, he, he, he's a big sort of believer of, of heavy strength training for, for rehab and, and uh, injury risk reduction. So he's has a lot of cool videos and, or at least images and on his Instagram page of, of, you know, focusing on calf strengthening and heavy calf strengthening using these bent knee calf raises or straight knee calf raises. And, and he's talked extensively on various podcasts as well on, on this. And, um, and, you know, we had a, we published a review uh, on uh, Master Runners last year, earlier this year, and a, a large portion of that review paper is, is the importance of, of calf strength and, uh, in, in older runners um, since 
calf strength tends to decline with age. So anyway, so he, uh, you know, the, the calf raises and the calf strengthening would be, I would say, at the top of the list if you've got, if you're time limited and you only want, you can only do two or three exercises, definitely put calf raises on top of the list. And then, you know, maybe squats probably would be the, the, the second or third one I would, I would go for. That's really helpful. Um, and I know that many of our listeners um, would fall into the master's category. Um, yeah. Not everyone, but a lot of the people that, that Malcolm and I work with uh, are middle age um, yeah. world. and uh, and yet you know they they want to continue running either they're new to running or they've been running their whole lives and they want to continue doing that and um, so it's not we, we, we want to figure out how to make that possible and yeah totally um, and it's not the same as what it once was like <laughs> when I think back I mean I I had my share of what I considered injuries as a high schooler and stuff, but man, I didn't feel old. I, I, I'd, I'd roll out of bed in, in the morning and it didn't take me 20 minutes to do some dynamic warm up routine before I could get out the door. It was just like, okay, it's 513. I'm going to be, my shoes are going to be on and I'm going to be out the door at 515 in the morning. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, run my, totally my morning yeah. run. Yeah. Same thing before, you know, after school, it was like, okay, sure. I guess we'll do this warm up so that our coaches can take role, but really like, we, oh, you know, um, yeah, I, I understand. Yeah. That's not quite the same. Yeah. <laughs> anymore. And, and most runners that I, that I work with, um, experience that, uh, as well. Not very few, yeah. but yeah, so I guess to, to summarize all that is injury, you know, factors to, to assess injury risks and all that are, quite challenging to, to tease out, but uh, there are certain things that I think make a lot of sense, like the strength training concept, even though the evidence is not quite there yet, you know, it has to start somewhere. And I think mechanically we have enough, we have enough mechanical reasoning behind why strength training would help. And, and uh, it just makes sense to kind of sort of investigate that a little more in terms of studies and, you know, to, to prove that, yeah, sure, this does actually work. And, and so on and so forth. Um, and so there's, there's, I think that's the, the next big thing in, in uh, running science is the influence of, you know, specifically deliberately designed strength training to uh, improve capacity of musculoskeletal tissue to hopefully reduce risks of developing running injuries. That's great. Thank you. Um, and, uh, We'll we'll get a hold of some of those resources um, that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The gentleman in uh, in Montana. Uh, what yeah. was his name? Again? I'm sorry. Rich Rich Willie. Rich Willie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so you you co-authored that um, that article with him. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's it's kind of a narrative review paper, and I'm happy to share that with you. Um, okay. I've, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll be sure to link that. Uh, it, it's entitled "The Physiology and Biomechanics of the Master Runner." Aside Correct. from calf, stre- calf strength, is there um, anything else? That yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's a bunch. There's a bunch else. Uh, I think what I think what happens with age is not just that like physiologically there are changes. I think I think from a lifestyle standpoint, um, as we age, just you know, we we do things differently. And, and one of the one of those big things that we do is life gets in the way if you will and we end up we end up potentially changing things like um you know we have more family uh commitments and and maybe work commitments so we do a little less right so we train less we train 
slower potentially. Uh, like you said, if, if I only have X amount of minutes to train, I'm going to throw my shoes on, uh, run out the door and go for an easy, you know, 30, 45 minute run. And I might not drive to the track or, or drive to a hill somewhere and do some specific sort of more intense type of sessions. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that we tend to, in addition to the intensity of, of our training, we tend to also decrease how much we do. Uh, of course, uh, again, time constraints and life constraints and so on. So those things, you know, ultimately end up affecting our, our sort of cardiovascular function, but also our biomechanical function. Um, and these things certainly uh, influence our like, running performance and, and, and potentially, you know, um, our injury risks. Um, uh, based on these changes that occur with, with age. So it's really tough to tease out age per se, because we often, I think often with age, um, there's a parallel, there are parallel changes in, in what we do in training, right? So it, it's, it's tough to say, oh yeah, you, you, as you get older, you, this XYZ happens um, because of aging. But I think often it's not necessarily because of aging, but because of changes to our lifestyle and training routines that come with aging does that make sense yeah so we're we're not necessarily teasing out aging and there's been some really cool work done by by uh, norman lazarus and stephen harridge uh these are uh, two really uh sort of famous performance scientists in the aging realm and they compared you know master level world records so these are people that train you know at the highest level uh mm -hmm. at, that are older and it's, it, it becomes clear that even at short distance events, like the 100 meters, all the way to longer distance, like the 10,000 meters, um, when you look at the performance times for those world records, the, the, the rapid, the precipitous downfall of these times happens like beyond 65, 70 years old. Like obviously people slow down, you know, mm -hmm. per decade uh, uh, after peak ages in the late 20s to mid to, well, nowadays, you know, later 30s. Um, but then like it really changes in the 65, 70 year old range. Um, and so it seems that because they're studying these world-class master athletes and they're not changing and they're not seeing these like exponential changes until in the sixth or seventh decade, uh, it seems that, you know, training does in fact help uh, uh, maintain sort of healthy physiology and biomechanics later uh, uh, in the, in, in the uh, uh, later with age. So, uh, I think we have to be careful when we, when we study aging and that we, we got to make sure that we, we don't, we're not, we're not studying, you know, declines in physical activity and lifestyle habits, um, as opposed to actual aging. Uh, and so that's, that thought, I thought that was really interesting. And we talk about this in, in this review paper. Um, but I would say based on the available evidence that beyond about 60 to 70 years old, you might call it a point of no return, if you will. Uh, that's been summarized by these these fellows I mentioned earlier, studying these uh, uh, performances with age. So it's pretty interesting, anyway, from that from that context. But um, so lifestyle changes happen, things change, and as I mentioned already, is that the, some of the really consistent things that we see with age is sort of uh, a decreased capacity of of those calf mus calf muscles. Um, and that seems to be in line with shorter step lengths and then sort of slower running speeds as a result. Um, so the idea of, of, of really focusing on strengthening of the calves for older runners, I mean, I, 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 would, I would say this nonstop, like a broken record, um, you know, on a loop if, if, I, if, if I had to, that 
again, uh, I mentioned that strength, strength training of the calves would be the biggest bang for your buck in any runner, but especially with master runners, um, that should be a priority in training. Even if you're not injured, just absolutely get after, you know, strengthening with heavy loads of the calf mus musculature, soleus and gastroc, and, and that should certainly uh, uh, play a role in, in, in uh, reducing those aging effects in runners. Great. This is really helpful. Thank you. And, and, and on that note, with the calves, bringing back the shoes in this conversation, mm -hmm. is that given that the shoes tend to, uh, you know, improve economy and, and alter what happens at the ankle, and or, or at least maybe do some of the work that, that is normally done by the ankle joint, given that older adults tend to not be able to do as much work uh, at the ankle, I think those shoes, and this hasn't been studied, but I bet those shoes make a larger difference in older runners um, in the sense that, you know, they already have a decrement in, in how much work their calves do. Mm -hmm. And so by using those shoes, they might actually sort of combat that aging effect of reduced calf function. Um, and so I, I, and this is one of the areas of research that I'm really getting into now is uh, aging uh, and running, but, but we've got a couple of nice studies. Uh, we have two nice studies in, in older runners that are uh, uh, on, uh, in preparation to, uh, to study the effects of different shoes, specifically the bending stiffness of the shoes um, and, and, and uh, economy of running and uh, biomechanics uh, of running in older runners. Great. Um, I, was, I was looking at some of the other articles that you've written and, and one of them was about um, cross-training. And yeah. uh, it was entitled Cross-Training for Runners, How Athletes Can Maintain Performance When Training Off the Track. Um, yeah. it, by cross-training, do you mean strength training uh, or or other types of, of cross training yeah good so this this particular article you're mentioning was uh it was it was not a peer-reviewed article it was more of a sort of a uh, a narrative or a commentary in the uh, us tfccca uh magazine called techniques okay um and here there were sorry they were specifically talking about aerobic cross training so you know anything that that would tax the aerobic system, but not, or the cardiovascular system, but uh, that's not running. So elliptical, swimming, cross-country skiing, cycling, rowing, those types of things. Okay. And so if you, the, the, so the big summary there is that if you think about, if you think about the, the percentage of, the percent contribution of the aerobic system in distance running, which is nearly hundred percent, right? Unless you're, doing like really specific intensity on the track, or if you're a miler or a meter runner, it's pretty much, you know, let's say 95 to 100% aerobic, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in a given training week. So if it's all aerobic and, um, you know, running injuries don't happen if you, if you, if you don't collide with the ground repetitively, uh, right? So we, we know this for sure. If I, if, if I just walk around, I won't get you know, Achilles tendinopathy or, or runner's knee or whatnot. So obviously there's something to do with impact that, that plays a role in running injuries. Um, so cross training generally means that you're doing something to, 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 to train uh, the cardiovascular system, but you're not necessarily actually loading up or taxing the musculoskeletal system. 
Um, and so that's, uh, there's a lot of value there, right? Like you're taking away the, the one thing that might contribute to the development of injuries while still training the system that is, you know, largely responsible for running performance. So it makes total sense to, uh, to, to cross train for runners. Uh, and I know runners get, get quite antsy and, and almost religious about, about their training and how many miles to the exact, you know, decimal point that they run each week. I think, <laughs> I think, you know, loosening the reins on that and understanding that if I can do a portion of my training that is for which its sole purpose is to improve my, the, my aerobic capacity or my cardiovascular capacity, then it makes a ton of sense to incorporate cross training so that you can, you can focus on with regards to running, you can focus on the more sort of the higher intensity session or the longer specific, you know, long run sessions and, and whatnot. Um, so that's, I think that's pretty crucial. Um, at the same time, you know, you're still running. So the goal is still to run. So you don't want to spend half your time crossing and half your time running because ultimately, especially in longer races, the cardiovascular system never really fails us. What fails us is our, is our muscles right? our legs. Um, you know, your, your marathon, your quads fail you and you have to walk or your calves fail you and you have to slow down. So it's, again, it's, you have to need that specificity of smacking the ground uh, with every step so that the, the demands on the musculature is specific to running, but you can still supplement a lot of that volume with cross training. Um, and, and with high school runners, I, I, I do this now quite a bit where, um, especially early season, a, a larger percent of the, of the sort of aerobic component uh, of training will be cross training so that they can sort of have, still get some solid fitness gains um, from it while not running too much early on. Um, and whatever too much is, 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 you know, specific to each athlete, but, um, you, you can get a lot out of it. Right. And so that's the, I think that was the summary of that, of that article is that, you know, we need to think about there's, there's other things that we can do to help runners get more fit without potentially increasing the risk of, of doing too much running. Okay. So I've heard different, um, or seen different numbers as far as equivalencies or, or how to, how to gauge, yeah. um, like the, the aerobic benefit that you may be getting. So I, with some activities, it's one-to-one, -one, like maybe swimming and running might be one-to-one -one in terms of the amount of time and intensity where you get some of the same aerobic benefit. Whereas with cycling, it might be three times as much, um, as you would run to get the same aerobic benefit. I, th those are just figures that have been thrown out. I'm not saying those That's are. That's interesting. Yeah. I've never heard that about swimming. Uh, I mean, I've never heard the three to one. I mean, like you said, like everybody uses different things, um, yeah. with those. And I think, I think specificity is important. I, I would say swimming, um, I would say, and again, there's no data on this, but swimming, like, if you think about swimming and, and basically you take away gravity, right? Like you're, it's just, you're in the water. So it's very, you know, it's, there's lots of buoyant forces. And so you don't, you're not fighting gravity. Mm -hmm. The demands on the human body with swimming are a lot less. Again, the mechanical demands are a lot less in swimming than they are in running. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they're a lot less in swimming than they are when you're biking or elliptically or rowing yeah. because with swimming, there's no, so 
cardio from a cardiovascular standpoint. I know for me, I'm a terrible swimmer. If I go swim 30 minutes, it's certainly going to feel cardiovascularly a lot harder than running 30 minutes easy. No doubt. Yeah. Like, there's just yeah. no doubt about it because I suck at swimming, right? Okay. Um, but if you're a really good swimmer and you run, yeah, if you're, and if you're a really good swimmer and you, you swim an easy 30 minutes, and, and the more I learn about swimmers, the more I realize that there's no such thing as easy swimming, it seems. Okay. Uh, They're swimmers all in. Tend to, swimmers <laughs> tend to be all out all the time, uh, yeah. three three times a day kind of thing, right? So, yeah. so, so again, I, I say this just more for comparison reasons, but if you're a really good swimmer and you go easy uh, for 30 minutes, um, that'll be re- that actually will be easy for you. Like, whereas for me, for example, or anybody that's not a swimmer who's been a running a runner all their lives, you know, there's no such thing as easy swimming. You know, yeah. <laughs> so from a cardiovascular standpoint, I might agree that one to one makes sense. But I think the most important part from a cross training um, comparison is is more the mechanical demands of the cross training uh, uh, modality. So okay. if if I'm if I'm trying to train cross train specifically for distance running. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there needs to be some mechanical load. So standing up on elliptical, uh, device, even though there's no impact, right. You still have, you know, the, the, the forces that are, are applied to you because of gravity are still mechanical in nature. And, and as a result, you, your body, um, is experiencing those forces. Um, those are taken away when you swim. Yeah. So. I think there's value in doing cross training that also loads up your body mechanically uh, while giving you a, a cardiovascular benefit. And I think that's, okay. I think, again, if, if people don't have much time to cross train and they're like, Oh, well, I could, I could, I could, you know, drive to the, to the, uh, to the pool, go in change, especially in Calgary, right in the winter or anywhere you know, in Alberta, so anywhere in the winter, you have to go in, change, get in the cold water, get out, shower. So, Whereas, you know, cross training, I think with an elliptical or bike can be a lot, a lot more logistically simple, um, uh, especially the bike, right? If you have a bike trainer and all that, but I, again, not much evidence on this, but I would say that, that elliptical is a better option than, um, than biking or swimming for runners. It's okay. a lot more biomechanically. It's a lot more similar. And we've done a couple of studies comparing the biomechanics of elliptical uh, training and running, and, and they're a lot more similar than, you know, than, than other, uh, devices. Okay. That's really good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Um, any other, um, any other research that, that you're excited about or anything else going on in the sport that, uh, uh, in terms of the reason, I think the, the exciting stuff with research right now is that we're tapping a little more into the, uh, how we quantify running training. Uh, got some really fun studies that one of them, that one of my master's students, uh, Megan Ryan uh, has been working on, uh, just finished this fall and is running up now. Um, you know, basically trying to, trying to compare different ways to quantify training. Um, and working on a uh, on a review with uh, with Trent Stellingworth and Rich Willie and Chris Napier, who's a physio in in, uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, on this particular topic and how you know basically just pointing some flaws and only using you know mileage or or, or kilometers to quantify just or running training, and then myself and Chris Napier, who's this, you know that this physio in Vancouver, we've we're, we're just submitting a paper this week on. Uh, 
on comparing week to week changes uh, in, 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 in volume or, or time running versus different metrics that are more biomechanically specific. And so that's going to be uh, an interesting study that, that's going to come out fairly soon, I hope. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's some really cool research going on in, in, in that realm of like, basically the question is, are we missing a lot by only quantifying, you know, weekly mileage in runners? Mm -hmm. And the answer right now I can tell you is yes, we, it, yes, we are missing quite a bit. Um, the big problem with that is, uh, is sort of our obsession with weekly mileage and mile and, and just, you know, what miles per week in general, um, we've got this ingrained culture for the last, you know, 60 years of, of quantifying running mileage. And so I, I don't think we'll, we're out of the woods in terms of convincing people not to only use mileage. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're making some good points and we're providing, we're, 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 we're presenting some, some convincing data to show that you know, we might need to consider some other things, not just mileage. So that's fun. Uh, I think that's, that's practical. And I think coaches, a lot of coaches are already doing or using different methods to quantify training, um, stress on runners. Uh, but I, don't, I think in the scientific literature, uh, one of the reasons why we tend to not see much in terms of, you know, does too much training cause injuries? I think it's because we don't quantify training quite well enough to, to really see that. So that'll also contribute to that scientific aspect in addition to that practical coaching aspect. Yeah, I, I look forward to, to reading that. And, and if you if you don't mind sharing it with us when you have published it, if, if there is a way of reading it digitally, we'd love to share it with our, our right. listeners and yeah. readers. Um, yeah. um, that's, that is a challenge. Uh, for a lot of coaches, the the coaching model uh, has changed in the last decade um, for a number of people. Uh, in yeah. that, uh, much of a number of uh, runners, whether they be at the elite level or recreational runners, have a coach who is not based in the same <laughs> places they are geographically, and uh, right. and so the internet allows us to share a lot of information and data, but um, prioritizing which of those data points mean the most and, yeah. and, and matter. Um, Absolutely. No, I it, it's that right hard on. to communicate to athletes and also to, to coaches. And so this is a, um, this will be an interesting discussion uh, and topic. Yeah. To... Yeah, for sure. And what you said about, you know, not having coaches, not being on site is, is true. I mean, if you think about, if I'm a coach and all I quantify is, is weekly, you know, distance kilometers mm -hmm. or mileage, whatever you, yeah. whatever you do. Mm -hmm. Um, and let's say, I, I, you know, I, or I, I, you know, quantify or prescribe, right. Either or, um, yeah. you know, because a runner runs, let's say, I don't know, 60 kilometers a week, one week and 60 the other week, it doesn't mean that it's the same week of training. Yeah. Um, you know, distance doesn't, doesn't account for, and doesn't, doesn't, quantify the response of an athlete to that training mm -hmm. so it's tough to really say oh yeah they ran 60 kilometers two weeks in a row that's the same the same stimulus um yeah. and, and and if you're not on site if you're coaching online and all you do and you never see the athletes you don't see how they move you don't see how they look you don't see how they you know how they you don't hear them you know talk necessarily and, and maybe the tone of their voice is telling you that they're tired or they're you know grumpy or whatever it might it might be um, it's hard to really sort of quantify the response to training by only looking at distance. Um, and even, even distance itself, if you, it, I think even a better measure is just time, you know, time mm -hmm. spent on your feet. If you think about 
you do you do 10k two 10k runs uh, at different times of the week, and if the prescription is yeah go easy, and your runner says oh yeah I ran 10k today oh I ran 10k uh, on Thursday as well okay okay cool they ran 10k that's that's it I'm done I know they ran 10k and I'm not looking at anything else well if you're really really feeling good on a 10k let's say that the day before you had a day off and so then you do 10k the next day it might let's say I don't know if you're if you're if you're a really good 10k runner like a sub 30 minute 10k runner let's say you feel really good and you run you know 37 and a half minutes uh one day because you feel good for your easy 10k right even though it looks fast you felt good and 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 so that means that because you felt good you ran faster and as a result you spent 37 and a half minutes running 10k so you're so you're on your feet for 37 and a half minutes then a few days later you know maybe you did, you did a hard session or a long run that same 10k run ends up making you really tired as a result of your training so you might run slower and as a result you might be out there for 45 minutes or you know 44 minutes and so as a result you take more steps and so more steps means more load on a day that you're already tired so to me using distance this is such a counterintuitive way to make sure you truly understand how your runners are responding to the training but it's just ingrained so deep in the culture yeah that's <laughs> that is for sure. Um, the time is definitely something that I I try and encourage and and, and effort. Um, but yeah, totally. but even, even quantifying the effort uh, with, with my athletes, I I try and use a color code. Um, yeah, with the, perfect. Uh, prescribe um, what they do, but also I I try not to even see it as entirely. Uh, I view it as a continuum, and so it's not even though there are, it's easy to put a numeric value to whatever that perceived exertion is, I, I yeah. try and use the color just <laughs> so that it's, you know, like it's, some days might feel like a blend of a couple different colors. Um, yeah, exactly. If you include a warm up and a cool down and the recovery in between, or, um, or it may not be right on, you know, exactly yeah. at that pace. Um, but if right. you're, if you're stimulating whatever that system is that you're trying to work, um, uh, that's, that's the ideal, but, but yeah, the idea of, um, what's that? everyone has a kind of a different approach to training and, exactly. um, and I, I don't think it's necessary to rewrite it all, but, but it is important to, <laughs> to, to keep in mind which metrics do matter because some of our watches have the ability to, <laughs> to quantify quite a bit <laughs> now, yeah. uh, or, or pods that people may be wearing on their, on their shoes or on their backs, but, uh, yeah, yeah it's important to, to know which to, which to yeah, prioritize. I totally agree. I think one, you know, again, if, 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 if coaches want to keep it simple, I think incorporating some measure of effort, as you mentioned, whether it's color codes or, or whether it's, you know, a, a rate of perceived exertion on a scale of one to 10 to, mm -hmm. to quantify the, the response to the training, which is really what that is. Yeah. Um, you know, just right there is a, is a huge advantage. It's that you're, you're already sort of covering most of the issues with only using mileage. Yeah. Um, well, I had um, a couple other listener questions, if you don't mm -hmm. mind uh, yeah, taking sure. some of them. Um, one question actually was related to coaching. And um, one person asked, if someone is new to running, and, and I assume that this means um, someone kind of post high school and, and possibly post collegiately, but if right. someone is new to running, um, 
is it important for them to hire a coach? Is that is that worth their time and money, or is is it possible to just kind of start and and learn as you go? Um, right, obviously, right. we're both coaches, <laughs> and it sounds like we both kind of came through the the traditional ranks or system of of having a coach uh, in high school and and that sort of thing. But what what do you think based on based on what you experienced as a as a coach and as a as a scientist? Yeah, good question. Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the goal of running. Uh, if you're trying to, if you're new to running and you're trying to, you know, achieve a specific end goal, whether it's whether it's being able to run for 30 minutes straight, uh, or whether it's to compete in a 5K or a mile race or something, and and you want to just get better at that, I think, I think having some guidance to start is is fairly important. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people will do as they get back into running or they start running regardless of the goal often the goal of of of, a, of starting a running program is, is for fitness and, and health and so often there's not really much there, that goal is fairly uh vague like yeah, i just want to be healthier so i'm going to start running so i think that's different than saying i want to run a 5k right at at, at a specific pace yeah. So if the goal is just to run to be able to get healthy and run a little more and maybe just kind of be able to run up to a 5K is different than saying I want to run a 25 minute 5K or a 20 minute 5K, right? So that's so that I think is a first question. If you're if you're starting to run, uh, and I would say for most people who are starting to run, I wouldn't have time goals and, and and whatnot. I would just say let me let me start running and start enjoying running. And that's the biggest barrier is that people say, oh, I hate running. I'm just so boring, right? So you know to start you know, you got to be careful not to get into it too quickly. And so that might be the biggest mistake as you start running and then you, you get, you feel good because you might be athletic already and somewhat fit and then you're like, Oh, I feel really good. But then remember that it's a new task, uh, Basically it's a new task with different demands on your body. Uh, and so if you're not prepared for that, of course it might lead to, to injuries, which the contents, sort of the logical reasoning behind injuries, right? It's just basically increasing the demands on tissues that then get injured and then you have to stop and, and start over again. So I would say uh, the biggest tips I, for that is start out by, you know, maybe join a group or not necessarily a training group, but just a, a social group. And, you know, there's a lot of beer runs and not necessarily drinking beer while you're running, but um, you know, social groups where you go for a run, a, a short run and have a drink afterwards, something like that, but just things that, that, that are associated with fun <laughs> to start yeah. off. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. And I'm not talking about fun runs because fun runs are that, that, that word is relative. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's fun for runners, obviously, but they're not necessarily for non-runners. So but doing some stuff socially with running, I get a partner run, you know, a, a few times a week, you know, two or three times a week for, you know, up, up to 10 minutes. Um, again, if you have some, some athletic ability already, if you've never run your life and maybe you're running for, for weight loss, then there might be some more, uh, more efficient ways to, to to, to, to achieve weight loss, you know, of course, uh, running can be a little bit, not dangerous, but, but risky, uh, for individuals who, who carry a good amount of mass, uh, again, for the same reasons, as I said before, the body's just not used to dealing with those loads. So yeah, the, the, the key term is progression and having fun with it. Um, and then as you feel like you're in a, on a, in a rhythm or a, on a roll, if you will, with training and, and you feel good and you might adding a you might consider adding a little more running every week and but again very 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 slowly sort of when in doubt just when in doubt it's probably too much kind of thing um 
And once you realize you can run regularly and you enjoy it, then you might start thinking about performance goals and, you know, hitting specific times and paces and whatnot. But I think people get into it too quickly thinking I'm going to run X, Y, Z in a 5k or 10k or my, my personal favorite or, or the one thing that I dislike the most about, and again, running is doing something is great, right? It's activity, but it can also be injurious or problematic as someone says they've never run in their lives and want to run a marathon. And I think our culture encourages that, right? Like grandiose achievements right away. Yeah. Um, there's no progression anymore. It seems like you go from the couch to, to marathon. Like that's just, to me, that's just like good for you for, for wanting to do it. I just think it's really a challenging and, and, and risky goal. Uh, just there's much more, there's much more, there's a lot less tangible goals, like having fun with running. That should be a primary goal. Uh, and then once you've achieved that goal, uh, however long it takes, then you can start thinking about, all right, let, let me make this a bit more uh, of a competitive goal, if you will. Anyway, hopefully that, that answers that a bit more. So wait until you're, you want to be competitive to hire a coach, I would say. Um, and, and with regards to injury risks, if you have friends who are physical therapists or physios, uh, I would pick their brains about sort of starting to run and, and being careful and incorporating strength training and cross training. And they might be able to help more than most coaches, frankly. That's great. Yeah. Uh, really good advice. I, I like the long-term approach and 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 the idea of focusing on those those um, less tangible goals yeah. um, of of enjoying it. Um, as a coach, um, I, I coached high school and middle school for a long time, and and have coached kind of at every level. But um, one of the most rewarding things for me is is seeing that that some of the athletes that I worked with when they were kids <laughs> are still running. Like that's that's my goal as a coach is is that that it's enjoyable enough uh, and meaningful enough that it's something that that the athletes that I work with want to continue doing it even after I'm their coach. Um, right. And um, and so it I, I struggle when someone says, "Hey, I'm turning." X this year like this is this is a big birthday a milestone for me i want you to help me train for this one event and it's going to be a one and done thing. <laughs> like i want to yeah. train for it and then i never want to run again and it's like i don't really know that i want to help you with that because <laughs> i want you to fall in love with running and, and want to keep doing it you know and so you know sometimes i i might agree to it but the, the the underlying goal of mine is sure help them prepare for this event but hopefully they enjoy it so much that they'll want to to continue running, whether that's with me as their coach or not. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you on this. I've I've had so many conversations just like related to what you just said. Um, you know, we're lucky here in town. We have a, a really cool uh, youth organization called Memphis Youth Athletics, who's uh, that's the brainchild of a good friend of mine, uh, Nick Dwyer, who's a local high school coach as well. And he's been, you know, he was a runner as well in high school and he's been involved in the running community for a long time. But it's a really fantastic organization that that basically helps school schools start uh, cross country programs at the middle school level. Oh wow! Uh, and so the whole point is, you know, you know, promoting healthy lifestyles uh, throughout the life uh, the lifetime in, in, in our in our youth community uh, here in Memphis. And of course, there's a big in the in the southern U U.S. There's a big need for healthy lifestyles, given the yep. uh, incredibly high rates of uh, obesity and cardiovascular disease. And so. Um, yeah, really cool programs like that, I think, uh, play a big role. And 
with regards to, you know, running and training and, and coaching, you know, I, we, we get asked to coach kids a, a good amount. And, uh, you know, my first question is always, what's the age of the kid, you know, and if, if they're not in high school yet, I tend to just say, oh, you know, I try to try to let them join their, their school program. If they don't have one, you know, try to find a, a you know, a local sort of group or like MIA, for example, and, and get involved and, 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 and do that, you know, more recreationally, if you will. I, I just, mm -hmm. I just think, you know, it, I guess it, 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 it goes to, to, it's sort of talking about the youth specialization issue, but I, I think, you know, even high school kids, I think sometimes I get parents asking, Hey, when should they start? I was like, well, they're playing basketball, they're playing football, they're playing soccer. We're like, let's just let them do that. And then, you know, they, we can meet once in a while for a little workouts here and there, but, I don't think I need to coach them full, full time and, and have them do a couple of sports uh, um, or, or have them focus on running and let them do a couple of sports and, you know, just get fit that way, you know? Um, yeah. So that's, a, that's always interesting to me, these, these conversations around, around youth, about training youth um, for competitive reasons. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. I, I grew up in a small town and then actually moved back to that same small rural town in, uh, in Eastern Oregon and uh, yeah. where in, in Canada, a lot of times a, a town will be a, a hockey town. Um, yeah. you're, you're from a hockey town. I, um, even though we didn't have a great football team, it, football is still king football and basketball. I mean, we, we yeah. filled a high school gym multiple nights a week to watch, to watch basketball. Um, right. And, uh, and so running wasn't necessarily, that big of a deal but but when people came from that mentality of of the, the big ball sports um and especially scholarship like hey this is a, kid, a chance for a kid to yeah. get out of this town um it, it got maybe a, not maybe it, it got a little too serious for a few parents um in, sure. in my opinion and um and it was to their credit i mean they wanted what was best for their kids but it but it was a hard conversation to have that you know, it, <laughs> they just do the work. Yeah, practice. There, there, there aren't like extra workouts that they need to be doing. Like, <laughs> let them be kids. Let them be teenagers. You know, or, or a lot of them had jobs on top of that, or other responsibilities. So it was kind of like we, we sometimes we train twice a day. That that's plenty um, for high school kids. They don't need to to be doing any more than that. But um, anyway, right. always interesting. Um, and that's that would be a whole nother conversation <laughs> that we might, we might want to bring you back for, for that early specialization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of experts in this field as well that yeah. might be better suited to discuss this, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of research being done on this and injury risks and all that. But uh, you know, yeah. I think the issue is that we, we tend to uh, sort of focus so intently on the very few cases of, of youth specialization that led to, you know, world-class athletes like Tiger Woods, for example, and uh, Serena yeah. Williams. But we tend to forget about other athletes that are the highest of levels, like Roger Federer, for example, who, who yeah. played multiple sports and, and are still at the top of their game, um, you know, in, in one sport. So I, it's easy to forget about the millions and millions and millions of cases uh, of professional athletes who, who were... Um, or sorry, of, of youth specialized athletes who did not become pro versus yeah. the handful of examples who did, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, while we have you, do you mind if I just ask you one more question kind of related yeah, to sure. the topic, but also um, related to injury prevention? Um, sure. So it, 
I guess it does have somewhat to do with the specialization or early specialization, but also um, if if a parent, um, oftentimes parents who are runners want their kids to be runners. Um, and I, I get asked all the time how to do that. It's like, uh, well, I, I have a lot of kids and none of them love running. So uh, <laughs> I'm not an expert at that. My goal is to eventually help them find it and, and love it. Um, but without it's so ingrained in our lifestyle that I don't want to impose it on them anymore and yeah, sure. choose it. But as far as injury prevention and, and long-term development, um, are there particular sports based on the research that you've done that, that might be um, more conducive to, um, to potentially having some longevity as runners? So, you know, wow. running, I know it, there are some communities that may have like a, a young kids track club or something like that but a lot of times you can start playing soccer or basketball right. or like that at a much younger age um right. physiologically and developmentally are, are there certain sports that you feel might transfer better or and or create greater durability and athleticism that might <laughs> help yeah. down the road as as runners right yeah that's super interesting um a really good question. I, I I would say that I'm not sure there's a specific sport that is better per se in terms of injury prevention, um, but I do think that you know team sports like hockey for Canadians and and uh, you know soccer, basketball, um, those those multi-directional uh, movement sports, I think uh, are, are would be quite valuable in, in the physical development of a young athlete. Um, that gets into running uh, because especially if you're uh, just a distance runner, for example, um, or even just a, a flat sprinter, you know, all you do is basically run in a straight line. Uh, yeah, you sh sure you turn on the track, but it's mostly just straight line running for the, for, for the most part. And so, and I'm not sure that there's a lot of evidence on this, but anecdotally, we do know that, you know, runners relative to, I'm not sure what population, but you know, you hear a lot of physios and physical therapists say this, that runners tend to be a lot weaker than other people. Um, and I'm not sure if that's just a, a general thing that we say without really uh, having any evidence, but it, it does make sense that sort of non front to back movements or, you know, sagittal plane uh, uh, motions um, might be a little weaker uh, in runners, given that the specific demands of running are you know, flexion extension, basically, of, of joints, right? Those major muscles, quads, calves, hamstrings, uh, you know, hip extensors, uh, those muscles, I, I mean, I think they're, they're overworked, while other muscles on, you know, on, on, in, different, in different planes of motion are underworked. So I think there's something to say about a holistic development of, uh, from a muscular skeletal standpoint in youth athletes that play sports that require different direction of movements. Um, I think soccer is a really good sport in terms of, uh, you know, coordination and, and fitness and strength and developing all sorts of skills, whether it's, you know, rate of force development or power, uh, and explosiveness and change of direction, jumping, landing, cutting, all these things. Uh, of course, growing up as a Canadian, uh, kid, you know, playing hockey, I think was, uh, it's also a great sport for that, but. Of course, being on uh, being on blades on ice is a little bit different than running, but there is there is something to be said about the coordination and strength that is required in hockey that I think translates well. Um, mm -hmm. 
this is anecdotal, but I played hockey for since I was four years old until I was about 15 or 16. Um, and I never, I never, I never got any you know, major chronic running injuries. Um, and I, you know, I, I got up progressively uh, running, you know, up to 160 Ks a week or hundred miles a week. And, you know, tons wow. of time on my feet on various surfaces. But I think, and I, you know, I, I've always been a bit sort of compared to your average runner. I think my, my, my quads and my, and my hip extensors, my, my calves are a little sort of thicker than most. And so I think I'm not sure if that had to do with my probably more genetics than anything else, but I think my involvement in hockey and soccer and basketball and other sports, I think played a role there. And I played a lot of court sports, uh, badminton and, and other sports like that squash and volleyball. So I think, that definitely, as you said, plays a role um, in, in terms of uh, uh, developing a, a more complete athlete in general. Um, so when you start running, you might you might be in a better spot, if that makes sense. There's uh, the one last thing I want to say about this is there was a really cool study published earlier this year, and it was regarding it was specifically about the. Uh, Norwegian brothers, the, the Ingebrigtsen brothers uh, oh, yeah. out of Norway, uh, and, and they basically kind of give us a bit of insight uh, regarding their um, their like their lifestyle and training over the years, and it's yeah. really quite a good. I'll, I'll dig it up and I can share it with you. But one of the things they mentioned is that it's not just running that contributes to these to this. You know, you know they're fantastic or they're they're, they're fantastic to be runners and, and they're really high levels of performance but environmental conditions family support so on and so forth but they also did a lot of sports like cross-country skiing in the winter so they wouldn't run a whole lot right they would cross-country ski a lot in the winter uh and do and do uh most of their running in the summer months and and, and you, know, you know during during the times when they could run in fact you know one of the one of the kids was that when they were 17 they were like a national junior cross-country uh, skiing champion and so you can see clearly, of course, cross new skiing from a cardiovascular standpoint it is hard to beat. Yeah. And so now it's a very specific type of uh, other sport that you're playing, but still it contributes greatly to your ability to be a good distance runner. So anyway, I thought that was quite fascinating. I can I can share that paper with you if you remind me uh, after this, uh, this this chat. Yeah, that that'd be really helpful. Um, Cross country skiing is is relatively new to me based on where I grew up, um, but I I now live in Canmore, Alberta, where the yeah. the, the home of uh, <laughs> cross country Canada. So, um, in fact, just before we got on, my wife asked me if I'd go skiing with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm I'm learning to appreciate the sport, and I and I'm aware that you know many Nordic skiers are like are the ones that kind of are the outliers in terms of VO2 max and their cardiovascular systems are just off the charts relative. To yeah. Others. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I need to, I need to embrace that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That you skill, should. Uh, and yeah. sport that I'm not so great at, but yeah. Uh, yeah it's I, fun. I mean, it's, it's a very technically demanding sport as well. Like you, I, I learned, I, I learned to ski and I was in high school. My high school coach, uh, Francois Bedil taught me how to ski. And you know, the first few times we went out there, it was all balance work. It was just kind of teaching me how to be be stable, and that's yeah. if you don't do that uh, the first few times, you, it'll take you a while to pick it up. But if you can work on balance and, and stability, then you you end up uh, being able to get going pretty quickly. Yeah, 
I'm looking forward to the to the new challenge. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Doing something a little different this winter. Yeah. Well, um, thank you again, Max, for your time. Uh, we appreciate um, your expertise and, and sharing your experience with us. Um, if if our listeners want to want to find you or follow you, what's the best way to to learn about you other than our show notes? Yeah, uh, I, I I'd say I'm, I'm most active on on Twitter. Um, you know, with my uh, my my name is Biomech Max on Twitter, and uh, you know, I, I you know I share some some resources, scientific resources, and you know I guess at this sometimes I suppose some humorous bits and and, and whatnot uh, as uh, as you stated earlier at the start of the podcast. Um, yeah. But yeah, just uh, anything running science related, performance, uh, some injury coaching. Um, that's sort of my tends to be the message on my platform. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I, I saw that uh, tweet and I appreciate you sharing. <laughs> so I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I thought it was funny myself, so I, I was hoping that others would, would see it the same way. So. No, I, I thought it was hilarious and, and very true and uh, uh, timely for sure. Yeah, I, I, I did get some, I was, I did get some, uh, some personal messages saying that like, you know, basically criticizing the tweet because they're, they, I don't think they picked up the humor in it, but they were saying that coaching is so much more complex than shoes and we need to educate. I'm like, yeah, I understand. It was just a joke. And so sometimes with Twitter, the, the, the connotation gets lost a little bit. Uh, but uh, anyway, so most of the yeah. time it works out fine. Uh, I think when I introduced myself, I, I mentioned that I was one of the 4% who wasn't wearing 4% at CIM. A couple <laughs> you did say that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And so I had athletes that were there running um, in either Vaporflies or variations of uh, yeah. Vaporflies from other brands. And I was not wearing a, car, a shoe with carbon fiber or PBAX in it. And, yeah. um, and I can speak from experience that uh, it, it certainly seemed to be helping uh, <laughs> yeah. the people that were around me because, yeah, um, I, yeah I, I felt like had I been wearing the shoes, I, I likely would have been in, in a different pace group or not being passed by so many pace groups, many of whom I was able to kind of run down because I don't think their fitness um, went with their ambitions <laughs> yeah. or, their, uh, or or the price of their shoes. But um, it, right. the same, it was, um, I, I don't feel like I'm morally superior for not wearing them. Um, I just have a contract <laughs> with a different brand. So that's, that's what exactly. I Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to say that, you know, yeah, you, as you mentioned just now, like you do need to have some amount of fitness before these shoes work, right? Like you just can't, you can't go and try to run a 230 marathon, uh, without fitness and hope the shoes will make that difference. They won't, you have to be running as well, of course. Um, but yeah, if you need a coach right now, Jacob, I'm happy to coach you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I have um, one top secret solution for you. <laughs> Sounds like a winning combo right there. Exactly. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for thanks for having right. me. It was fun, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again. Yeah, hope so. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Art and Science of Running podcast. Malk and I would like to invite you to join us this spring at the Peak Run Performance Rocky Mountain Running Retreat from April 30th to May 3rd. That's four days with other runners from around the world running in a beautiful setting and discussing all things running. In addition to that, 
Malk will be performing gate assessments uh, throughout the weekend and will provide you some feedback about your gate. Certainly discuss training, strength training, injury prevention, nutrition, and anything else that uh, have questions about throughout the weekend as it relates to running. This will be based at a lodge in the Rocky Mountains. This is an opportunity to either bring some a partner or, or a training group out and, and enjoy the trails together, um, stay together, but it's also an opportunity to meet other people from around the world. This is only for adults. It is co-ed, um, but it's, it's for runners of all ambitions and abilities, whether you're a beginner or you're an Olympian. Uh, if you've got an open mind and you want to run in a beautiful place with other like-minded people, this is for you. Uh, we welcome you. For listening to this podcast, we want to offer you 10% off. So if you use discount code ASR10, that's ASR10, you can um, get 10% off your registration of this retreat. It will fill up. We want to keep the numbers small so that we can give the attention to each participant um, that signs up. So we hope to see you this spring at the Peak Run Performance Rocky Mountain Running Retreat. I'm going for a walk.